we've got a digital Bible. You swipe, tap, you do your thing. Uh, but there are Bibles in front of you if you need one. And that's where we will be. 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 2. Get my Bible out here. We're going to go uh, chapter 25 down through the, the end of the chapter, verse 2 to the end of the chapter, and we are continuing through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to finish up a week or two into May, um, and we have something different planned. Let me read this, and then we'll dig in. And there was a man in Maon, whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let, me find, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told, all, told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, for he is such a worthless man that no one, or that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. 
And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who followed my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall fling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord is done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried, and come to meet me. Truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. You have a long passage today, and, and there's a, a lot I have to say about it, so I'm going to kind of dispense with too much by way of, of introduction. Um, I thought it might be fitting, though, to, you know, ask ChatGPT or Bard or one of these guys, you know, what they thought wisdom was. I was not impressed with the answer, so I got nothing there. Um, this passage, though, I think points us in the direction of showing us the value of God-given wisdom. Shows us the value of God given wisdom. And it shows us that value at least four ways. At least four ways. First, that a lack of wisdom is dangerous, that wisdom preserves life, that wisdom prevents or stops sin, and that the wise will receive their reward. So that's my outline, and I'm just going to, for the sake of time, dig in. We have this interesting story in this chapter, and we'd probably love to know so much more about the ancient culture and the customs behind it than we do. Sometimes we have great archaeological evidence and things like that that tell us all kinds of insights. And there's some things here we'd just love to know, at least I would love to know, that we don't know. But I'll touch on that in a moment. But over the last few chapters, David and his small contingent of men have been keeping their distance from King Saul by staying in the remote deserts of southern Israel, in the territory of the tribe of Judah. But in verse 2 
our attention is taken away from the deserts and the wilderness to Carmel. Now, Carmel was the, the name of several sites in ancient Israel, as well as a nice suburb of Indianapolis. But the name Carmel indicates fertile land, a place that was lush for growth and planting. But that kind of has to be taken, like graded on a curve compared to the deserts, compared to Israel as a whole. Uh, the rainfall in this part of Israel is kind of like the southern border between Texas and Mexico. It's not as hot, but that's the kind of level of rainfall we're dealing with. It's a lot drier than Cleveland. Um, fertile compared to the desert. It's not a rainforest either. There's this man from this nearby town of, of Moan who did his business there, and, and, and he was apparently extravagantly wealthy. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, enormous flock, even by today's standards. An individual is usually not going to have that large of a, uh, a grouping of animals. So fantastically wealthy individual. And so that's his first character trait is extreme wealth. But then we're introduced to his wife, and we're told that she was discerning and beautiful. But Nabal, on the other hand, was harsh and badly behaved. And these descriptions deserve some pause. Abigail was beautiful, or as the Hebrews would say, beautiful of appearance. Things can be beautiful in many ways. She was beautiful in her appearance. But not only in her appearance, because she was also beautiful in a more significant way. She was discerning. It's one of, this, uh, one of these words in, these, in this collection of words the Bible uses for wisdom. It goes beyond mere head knowledge. It doesn't exclude head knowledge. But it goes beyond it to having a deep understanding of just what to do in a given situation to bring about a successful result. It is intelligence and experience, and it is ultimately rooted in the knowledge and concern for God. As Solomon, the son of King David, would one day say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Very few individuals in the Bible are singled out for their wisdom. Abigail is one of them. Unfortunately, she's mismatched with this terrible man named Nabal. He's harsh. The Hebrew suggests a heaviness about him, a meanness about him. And he's badly behaved. I'm not sure I'm thrilled about that translation. I don't know how you hear it. It's accurate, but it sounds like the way we would talk about children. And, and I don't think that that really captures the weight of his character. Because more literally, he was a man who was evil of deeds. And it's awkward in English, but it also sets a little bit harder, doesn't it? He's just a bad man. Some scholars have suggested, there's this little note here, that he's a Calebite. That might be a two-edged sword. Caleb was one of the most prominent settlers uh, among the ancient Israelites in Judah. So Nabal comes from a prominent and important family. But Caleb also sounds like the word dog in Hebrew with apologies to a couple of you, uh, and, and there, there might be a bit of a dig there that he was dog-like. So that's the setup of these two. And it's important that we understand their respective characters because what happens in this story, in this slice of history, is not an anomaly. This is not Abigail having a good day and Nabal having a bad day. This is an overflow of who they were at their core. Now, Nabal goes to shear sheep. What we do know from archaeology is that this was a big deal. Twice a year, 
sheep were sheared. It was a lot of work, but it also meant a lot of other stuff was done. You're, you're, you're sort of harvesting the sheep in a way. And so it was a time of celebration. It was a festive occasion. You, you had feasts, you had parties. And David sends some men to speak with this very wealthy guy. Apparently, David had not spent all his time hiding in the desert. He's made himself useful in the region by becoming something of a local enforcer. Now, back then, I know this is different than the way we think today, but this is still true in many parts of the world. Back then, cities were considered safe. Rural areas, you have to think like the Wild West in the old, old movies. There's no law, there's no sheriff, there's no protection. And so bandits and thieves could swoop in and steal. Wild animals were abounding. And so whatever possessions a shepherd had or whatever sheep or goats he was tending, those could just be taken off. Now, it doesn't seem like David was asked to do this. And, and this is where I, I would just love to know, it doesn't seem like anyone is aware of if there was a cultural custom for doing this or, or what the background is for David kind of assuming this role. Because he's, David and his men are sort of functioning like a vigilante police force. But there's something a bit noble about that. Because even though he's effectively exiled from the halls of power, and he's unable to assist the king strategically or militarily. He can't go back to his old way of life because Saul is still out to get him. He continues to serve his people. He is finding a way to help his people. And so David asks for a favor. He sends his men to Nabal during the feast, during the time of celebration, with all the politeness of ancient Near Eastern custom, and they wish Nabal and his household peace and they remind him or maybe inform him of all the good they have done for him. And probably, no doubt, the other shepherds in the area. And, and, and through his men, David asks for whatever you have on hand. It's a, it's a broad request. It's asking for generosity, but, but not asking for anything specific. He's not asking for you know, the best lambs in your flock. Whatever you have on hand. It's asking for Nabal to provide for them out of his overflow, out of his overabundance, out of his excess. And Nabal has plenty of excess. And his response is, like his character, harsh. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to my men who come from, or give it to these men who come from I do not know where? And, and, and you kind of hear this repeated theme, don't you? I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. And not even bread and water. The meekest of rations can be spared for these men who had served him so well. He speaks disparagingly of David, one of the most famous and important men in the, in the nation, as if he were a nobody. And, and he suggests that he and his men are just, they're just rabble-rousers who don't know their place. So the men go back to David, and they tell him that he's incensed. And he tells them to strap on their swords because they're about to go to war against Nabal and his house. Now, I'm going to come back to David and his actions in a moment, but we're going to focus on Nabal for a moment. Again, we, we don't know what the cultural customs were. Obviously, David felt like he could make a request like this, and he could come away with some provisions. But Nabal was a fool. His wife tells us as much in verse 25. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. The name Nabal means folly. Now, some have speculated, his parents wouldn't have really called him folly, would they have? Um, maybe it was derived from another word, and it came out sounding a lot like the word folly. 
Or, or maybe it was just everyone knew him. He was so foolish that everyone just kind of nicknamed him Folly behind his back. Or who knows? But he was a fool. Now, you might argue that he didn't have a contract or a verbal agreement with David. So why should he have to give him anything? And I say, you might be technically correct, but you're kind of missing the point. You might argue that it's unfair to be put in that position, to be suddenly requested to do something you weren't expected to do. And I'd say, you're technically correct, but you're missing the point. This is not about fairness here. It's not about right or wrong. Wisdom is related to morality, but wisdom is not identical to morality. Biblical wisdom is the God-given ability to skillfully apply knowledge to bring about a successful result. Biblical wisdom is the God-given ability to skillfully apply knowledge to bring about a successful result. Nabal's response to David's men does not bring about a successful result for him. It's foolish. He seems to have no awareness of who he's dealing with. He is dealing with a dangerous man. Now, David is a generally very good man, but he's a dangerous man. Let's be honest. He has led troops into battle time and time again. He has killed lions. He killed the mighty Goliath. He commands a small army that is at your doorstep. Why would you want to risk having such a person mad at you. It's just foolish. Even if you're going to say no, there are polite ways to say no. He lacks any skill in applying knowledge. But he might also just lack knowledge. You see, the definition I gave of biblical wisdom there assumes it requires knowledge. You cannot be wise and ignorant. Wisdom depends on knowledge. Wisdom doesn't end with knowledge, so you can have a lot of knowledge and still be a fool, but you can't be wise and be ignorant. He asks, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? But doesn't he know? Doesn't he know what King Saul himself knows? Doesn't he know what the king's own son knows? That David will one day be king. His wife even seems to know. And why would you want your future king to be angry with you? What an opportunity this could have been. Again, set aside morality for a second. We're setting aside David's actions here. We're just, we're just looking at Nabal for just a moment, putting ourselves in his shoes. What an opportunity this could have been to make an alliance with the future ruler of your country. But Nabal lacks skill and knowledge. He is a fool. And he also appears to be just plain ignorant. So a lack of wisdom otherwise known as folly or foolishness, is dangerous. It can rob you of your possessions. It can rob you of your money. It can rob you of your friendships, your family, or even your life. A lack of wisdom is dangerous. You know that in 2021, the fourth leading cause of death in America is listed as accidents. Accidents. Now, not all accidents stem from folly, but wisdom is exactly that quality which allows us to avoid accidents and minimize the damage when they occur. But, but even that doesn't tell the whole story because the second leading cause of death is cancer, and, and cancer is nasty and, and is a generally indiscriminate enemy. But 20% of that Cancer death is from lung cancer. And 80 to 90% of those 
are attributable to cigarette smoking, which we know and is preventable. Or murder. Murder is actually very low on the list. I know, uh, you know, some of y'all internationals might think we have the super high murder rate here. And, well, it's not as low as we'd like it to be. But it's, it's not high on the list of causes of death in this country. But do you know that even less than 10% of all murders in the United States by FBI statistics are committed by a stranger? Less than 10%. But that's what we live in fear of, isn't it? That a stranger is just going to pop up and pop us? But over 20% of murders are committed by family members. The upshot is that people often know who they are dealing with. And they're still choosing to deal with them in unsafe ways. Now, I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush because, of course, every circumstance is different. But the reality is that statistically speaking, many of us are in situations where wisdom screams, get out! And other people run into situations where wisdom screams, stay away! And we get hurt. Why these unnecessary deaths, from whether it's cancer or whether it's guns, many people in these situations do know better. It's often not a question of knowing. It's the ability to skillfully apply knowledge to bring about success. A lack of wisdom is dangerous. But just as much as a lack of wisdom can be dangerous, even deadly, the possession of wisdom can preserve Life. That's the corollary of it. So David has his army of 600 men. This is where we're going to spend the, the lion's share of our time because it is the most significant chunk of our passage. David has this army of 600 men. He leaves 200 with the supplies, 400 he takes to pursue Nabal. And although this might have started as a ragtag group, they have a successful battle under their belt. You might remember that they rescued the city of Keilah from the Philistines. They've had time to train. They've had time to prepare. This stands to be a very bad day for Nabal. But one of Nabal's servants does something probably a bit unorthodox in that culture. He goes to Nabal's wife to rat him out and to plead with her. He tells her exactly what went down. And he confirms that the story is true. David's men really did protect them as they roamed with their flocks. And he treated them so well. But she needs to act. Or, as it says in verse 17, Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do. Because disaster is on its way. And Nabal is completely unreasonable. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So Abigail wastes no time. She gathers together 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. Now, for 600 men, that's pretty meager. But one scholar points out, you start dividing this up by 600 men, it's actually very close to a similar list of regular rations provided to a military serving in that area that we have dug up in by archaeologists one time. It was an army serving that area from another country, living off the land. This was their sort of regular rations. And so it seems like the wise Abigail knew what she was doing. And so she rides toward them. And David, for his part, is hot. He is saying, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. So David is so mad so angry that he did something good. We get that. We've been there. It's the wrong 
attitude, and, and, and we'll come back to that, but we understand it. We felt that way too when our, when our efforts have gone unappreciated. Most of us don't command small armies that we can use to affect retribution, but, but you can hear it, can't you? The bitterness in David's voice. And there's an irony too, isn't there? Just in the very last chapter, in chapter 24, Saul acknowledged, King Saul acknowledged that David had done him good and that he, Saul, had returned David's good with evil and, and was amazed that David had not taken the opportunity to harm him, had not killed Saul when David had the chance. But here, a chapter later, and, and some time has passed, but a, a, different, a different spirit has come over David. Maybe it's because Nabal is not God's chosen king. Maybe because Nabal was particularly offensive and it just, it just hit at the core of who David was. Maybe David just lost his cool. David even takes an oath, swearing to kill all the men in Nabal's house. Literally, and, and, and literally, I mean, it doesn't say one male. It literally says... He won't leave a single person, person alive who urinates against a wall. I could, I could substitute other words, but you'd say that's not spiritual. But that's what the Bible says, and it's in the Bible. So you do with that as you want to do with that. But the fact is, David gets a little vulgar here because he's showing his anger. And by taking an oath, he's really committing himself to the action. God's people were supposed to keep their oaths, especially once you invoke the name of the one and only God, Yahweh, Lord of Lords. So David is all in. He's, gotta, he's got to do it now. And into that, Abigail rides on a donkey with a confidence that can only come from either great wisdom or great folly. That's really the only two options here. And her actions or her words, I, I think your response to them might say a lot about whether you or I are on a path to wisdom or a path to folly or not. See, Abigail sees David and she immediately throws herself on the ground with all the humility of an ancient Near Eastern bow of a lesser to a superior. But she is powerful. She is no doubt used to bowing to no one. At the end of this passage, Nabal is throwing a feast like the feast of a king, so she is used to living like a queen. I'm guessing she does not bow very often. She swallows her pride because pride is for fools. And she begins her speech with words that must have taken everyone at that scene aback. And if you hear them, they probably take you back a little bit too. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Abigail takes the blame for the entire mess and begs David to hear her out. And she probably knows David's not going to strike down an innocent woman in the Judean wilderness. But she's taking a risk. And her opening words have probably caught him off guard, along with this, just the sheer surprise of her appearance with gifts. And so she bought, she's bought herself some time. And she continues, Let my Lord regard, not regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And so the theme of humility continues. No doubt she would be used to being called the equivalent of a lady, but she repeatedly calls David, this renegade do-gooder, her Lord. And she says, don't pay any attention to my husband. So she does throw him under the bus in the sense of being dismissive of him, which is generally frowned upon in 21st century America, but would have been 
very frowned upon in that culture. Okay, she says he's a nothing. He's worthless. He's so worthless, he's not worth your time. But I, Abigail, I didn't even see your men come, and that's on me. I didn't even know about the whole thing. Apologies. I was not aware of what was going on. I should have been aware of what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. Now, clearly, Abigail's using some really good rhetorical prowess here. She is a fantastic speaker. But I don't think it's all bravado. I think there might be something deep down true about all this. There might be a sense in which she truly does take some ownership of this. In Proverbs 31, the book of wisdom, we can read, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And it goes on to describe the ways the excellent wife applies wisdom and skill to help her family prosper. Now, the Bible is not so one-sided as to suggest that fools never prosper. There are plenty of examples where they do. And like Job, who had everything and lost everything, like the apostles, like Jesus himself, sometimes the righteous and the wise suffer. But if wisdom is the ability to skillfully apply knowledge to bring about success, then generally the wise will be more successful and the foolish will generally be less so. And we might look at Nabal and wonder, how did this man succeed? And maybe he inherited everything. That's possible. But it's also possible that his incredible success had more to do with the steady hand of Abigail than his own efforts. And maybe she is truly frustrated with herself just a bit that the one time she was not around to restrain him from his foolishness like she had so many times before, he has brought disaster on their house. But, however we want to take it, she is using her words to shift the focus from this foolish brute of a man to the beautiful woman in front of David and her gift, and that's a wise move. And with David's attention held for a moment, Abigail moves to a rhetorical strategy that every good salesperson knows. Even bad salespeople know it. I was a bad salesperson for a short season. You assume the sale. You assume the sale. Listen, she says, Now, then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. The Lord has restrained David. You see what she did there? David hasn't even spoken yet. But she was speaking as if it's as good as done. David's not going to kill Nabal. And she does it by invoking God's name. She says, the Lord, Yahweh, that's God's name, his one true name in Scripture, Yahweh, it's the word Lord with the small capital letters. Yahweh has stopped David from what he was planning to do. So now that puts David in a double bind because what's he going to say? Well, I'll show you. The Lord can't stop me from doing what I want to do. David wouldn't speak that way from, about God. So she's kind of put him in a verbal box, hasn't she? And it's really, it's a triple bind. Because she's done all of this in a way that's also put him in a, given him a gentle rebuke. Now, she has not called David evil. She hasn't told him what to do. But if David went and killed Nabal and his men, that would put blood guilt on David. In other words, whatever the customs were at the time, whatever expectations David should have had or not had from Nabal, it did not excuse what he was planning to do. It would be murder. And Abigail is being extremely bold. 
and extremely courageous and extremely godly. And she's also pushing the boundaries of social custom for a woman at that time. But in her wisdom, she is able to subtly offer spiritual correction to a man who is not her husband, who is carrying a sword, who is leading an army to kill her husband and his servants. And she does it in a way that does not cause offense. That is skillfully applied knowledge. Now, it's not perfectly clear what she means when she wishes for David's enemies to be as Nabal. But I think in the context, it means something like this. May all your enemies, David, be worthless fools who are too incompetent to really harm you or be of any concern to you. Then Abigail continues. And this is where she makes the crucial ask. She asked David to accept the present, verses 27 and 28, and she asked David to forgive her, to forgive her for her inability to restrain her foolish husband. And then she makes a final plea, which, which is wrapped up in reminding David of the good promises of God. She says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. It means that David will have a lineage, he'll have descendants, he'll have a family tree to carry on after him. He will live. And she knows this because she knows that David has been out there fighting the Lord's at Yahweh's battles. He's been doing what God wants. And she says it would be improper for a man like you, a great man like you, to be stained by an evil deed like this. Wow, that's, that's got to cut to the heart, wouldn't it? Instead, she believes, based on God's promises, that God will preserve David's life. His enemies will find it impossible to kill him because God will protect him. And really, and really, she says, she's looking out for him. As she says in verses 30 through 31, when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and he has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience. She says, God is going to make you king over Israel, David. And when that day comes, and it will, you don't want the weight of guilt on your shoulders for the things you did in this desert because of a fool like Nabal, do you? I know you won't. What a killer finish that is. Almost, because the finish, she assumes the sale one more time. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. When, not if, when. To remember her means to do some good for her at that future time. That's not something he's likely to do if he rejects what she's asking right now. Now, I know we spent a lot of time here, but Abigail's words really are the they're the highlight. They're the center of this passage. And they, they are the words of wisdom being spoken. And since wisdom is from on high, they are, in a sense, the voice of God in this passage. And by, by making carefully informed preparations, by taking bold action, by swallowing her pride and speaking skillfully, Abigail has created an opportunity to save the life of her husband and his servants. And how does David respond? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you. David, he says, see, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. That is incredible. David listened to Abigail, David obeyed her voice. David heeded her wisdom. Wisdom can absolutely save lives. And of course, if wisdom can save a life, it can save so much more than a life. No doubt if David had attacked Nabal, he would have come away with some of those 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. 
The corollary to the danger of lacking wisdom is the tremendous value in having wisdom. Even when deeply, truly, the circumstances are not your fault, or perhaps even your concern, wisdom, like salt, can have a preserving effect. But there's something else to touch on in there, just to switch from Abigail to David for a moment. Wisdom stops sin. Wisdom stops sin. I said there's a connection between wisdom and righteousness, and, and we don't get this because we don't talk about wisdom enough. Christians, and I, and I think especially evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, have a tendency to flatten everything into these black and white categories of sin and righteousness. We, we have a tendency to paint with an overly broad brush. We, we don't have a category, or it's not very well developed for wisdom. And so we put everything into the sin bucket or to the righteousness bucket. Or if you have a more legalistic bent, sometimes you put things into a sin bucket or a not sin bucket. And if it's not sin, then it's okay. If you think that the legalistic people are the people who are always saying no, no, no to things, you haven't met the really legalistic people. They say yes to a whole lot of stuff because it doesn't fit into the the bad bucket. If they can't immediately put it into a bad bucket, then it's just okay. That's the really legalistic people, like the Pharisees in the Bible. Now, First off, in, in, in defense of Bible-believing Christians and evangelicals, at least we have those two buckets, because they are important buckets. The Bible talks about them. God is a just God. He's a moral God. He has standards that he abides by, and he wants us to be like him. So we need those categories. Woe to those who try to do away with the categories of righteousness and sin. But the danger is that when it comes to foolishness, I've seen Christians try to put folly into the sin bucket and it doesn't belong there. What's foolish isn't necessarily sinful. All sin is foolishness, but all foolishness is not sinful. On the other hand, I've seen Christians who tend to take anything they can't find a rule for in the Bible, who they can't put in the sin bucket, and they declare it okay. But that's just a really shallow way to look at the world, let alone God, as if things are either off or on, okay or not okay. Some things, not all things, but some things are gray. And that's where we do need some wisdom. Things are black and white. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not murder. Thou shall not commit adultery. That's black and white. What about alcohol? The book of Proverbs teaches us the gray that wisdom is necessary to navigate. Proverbs 3, 9, 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So overflowing abundance, including an overflowing abundance of wine, is one of the blessings a person can generally expect of living a life of wisely honoring God with our possessions. On the other hand, Proverbs teaches, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. And wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Well, that sounds like wine is a danger to stay away from. So which is it? That takes wisdom. That's why those competing ideas exist in a book of wisdom. They're meant to be wrestled with. So wisdom and righteousness, folly and sin, they're sort of like the graph of a math function. They, they exist on different dimensions, on different axes. They're related. You can't separate them, but they're different. They're different like X is different from 
why. How are they connected? Well, they're connected in too many ways for one sermon. And I would encourage you to go back and listen. We did a series on the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs in the summer of 2020. And those are on uh, the website. They're on YouTube. But one way is that foolishness often puts us into positions where we are more likely to be influenced by evil and more likely to feel the desperation to act out of evil impulses. Consider a person who squanders his paycheck at the casino and and has no money to pay his bills. That's foolish. But now he may be more tempted to do something illegal, like steal from a friend in his desperation to stay alive. That's sin. There's another way they're connected. Uh, God-given wisdom allows us to hear and respond to spiritual reason. That's sort of implied in the passage from James 3 that Gloria read from us this morning. Read, Read for us this morning. Even if it comes in a form that runs counter to our cultural expectations. Just about everything in 1 Samuel 25 Everything that scene was probably foreign to David. A woman, another man's wife, speaking to him in public without her husband's knowledge or consent. In fact, attempting to subvert her husband's actions and intentions. What's more, reminding David of God's promises, reminding him of God's law, reminding him of his own conscience. It's pretty bold. It'd probably be a bit countercultural in many contexts today. It was completely countercultural at the time. And David could have easily turned a deaf ear to it and just walked away. David was fuming. He was driven to vulgarity. He was taking oaths in God's name about the violence he was going to do to Nabal. David was not a perfect man. He wasn't but he was a wise man. And wisdom won out. God used wisdom to, by David's own admission, restrain him from committing a sin. I assume at some point in your life you've been corrected by someone. It doesn't usually feel good. Have you been corrected by someone who should be in whatever context below you. Somebody who's under you at the company or somebody who's of a lower class than you or has less education than you or is younger than you or anyone who for any reason you feel in that context seems like they should be beneath you. It's difficult. Were you able to allow yourself to be corrected? What about someone you're upset with or should be upset with or someone who's just standing in the way of the person you're upset with like Abigail was? It's hard to accept correction from a person in that position. But in Proverbs 15, Solomon says, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof, that's correction, will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. David listened to life-giving correction, didn't he? quite literally, life-giving correction. And David is counted among the wise. It took tremendous humility in his culture to listen to Abigail. But wisdom humbly listens to truth. Pride 
is for fools. That is the fear of the Lord. And there's a final point to me in this passage. Abigail goes home. The ball's thrown in a feast like that of a king. He's drunk. He can hardly be, re- hardly be reasoned with when he's sober, so she wisely waits until the next morning. And after the wine has gone out of Nabal, it says, which seems to be a double entendre for being sober and also for this uncouth man needing to remedy his overfilled bladder from a night of drinking, Abigail tells him what she did. And his heart dies within him, and he becomes stone. Most take that to be like a stroke. It sure fits the description of a stroke. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a doctor. We can ask him later. But um, whether he was shocked by how close he came to death or by the loss of wealth at Abigail's hand or the brazenness with which she acted or his overindulgence in food and drink or just sort of all of the above, it's impossible to tell, but he lay paralyzed for 10 days, and then God takes his life. But it was, it was God all along. And when David hears the news, he praises God. Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So he praised God because God kept his promise. That David should have known. That David did know. He knew it a chapter before that God takes vengeance so that mortals don't have to. It's not our prerogative to take vengeance. We talked about that two weeks ago. We don't always see God's vengeance in this life, but, but, but David was given one of those rare moments where God's vengeance came in close proximity to his own grievance. And yet at the same time, I don't think it would be fair to say that God punished Nabal for what Nabal did to David alone. Nabal probably was sinful in what he did to David. He was rude, he was condescending, he was cruel, he was inhospitable, and he failed to love his neighbor as himself. But God's patience is tremendous. But I think in God's sovereignty, his patience with Nabal ran out at this time. But David is also reminded to thank God that God stopped him from sinning. God was the one who gave him wisdom. God gave Abigail wisdom. God sent Abigail. David knew what God's faithful have known since the beginning, what James writes in his little letter in the New Testament, in the first chapter of that letter, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The source of every good gift is ultimately with God. And so it is to him that we owe ultimate thanks. Then David, seeing the value of a wife of such wisdom and excellent character, pursues Abigail to be his wife, and she readily agrees. Now, I know you might have some questions about that. They're not really at the heart of this passage. I don't want to ignore them. Um, questions like, doesn't this seem sudden? Yes. Uh, was it okay for David to have more than, wife, more than one wife? Not really, but it's complicated. Uh, and what about Michal? Uh, yeah, that's going to come back up later. And I'll happily talk to you about those things more afterwards or a later time. Um, But they're not the heart of the passage. I don't want to dwell there, and it's 1201. Here's the thing. Abigail's (laughs) tremendous wisdom, though, was rewarded. She was set free from the burden of living under a tyrant and a buffoon like Nabal and given the opportunity to marry the future king. In fact, David was in many ways the perfect match. Uh, The words used to describe her, pleasant to look at and discerning, were words that were used to describe David earlier in, in different contexts. And like David, she seems to be a woman of deep and abiding faith. 
I could be wrong, but I don't think any other woman speaks about Yahweh, the Lord, more than Abigail in the entire Old Testament. Certainly not more in such a concentrated, you know, you know Yahweh's per minute. Um, it, it's it's the, the got to be the highest concentration of Yahweh drops uh, in, a, in a speech by a woman in the Old Testament. Um, and, and it sure seems like it's not just for show. Nabal was a man she had to run around and hide from in order to serve God faithfully and to exercise wisdom, even in saving his life. In David, she found a man who would listen to her, who would obey her voice when she was the voice of reason and right because he knew she spoke truth. Now, wisdom usually pays a dividend in this life. Often. Usually. But even when it seems not to, the wise receive their reward. How? Because God-given wisdom is itself its own reward. As Solomon wrote, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Do we really believe that? Not sure we do in the West. What if we do if we don't have wisdom? Let me just say start here. Start where James starts. And he says quite simply, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That is a great place to start. Remembering that wisdom is ultimately a God-given commodity. We go first and foremost, to God to find it. Wisdom has tremendous value. We ignore it at our own peril. We chase after gold and silver and experiences and fun and games and entertainment, and we miss wisdom, which has its own reward, which has the ability, with higher probability of success, to give us those things, not that they're the goal or the end or the desire themselves, but has the higher probability of giving us those things, and Better yet, being satisfied without those things. Let us be people of wisdom. Let us pray. Father, we, um, we ask for wisdom. You have said that we can ask for wisdom, so we ask for wisdom. Perhaps some of us here are not fools. But we know that the wisdom of men is foolishness before you. And so when we come before you, God, we stand before you as fools. And so we ask for wisdom from on high that we might be a little more wise, that we might be a little smaller in our eyes, that we might have the humility that we need to look up and receive by your Spirit wisdom, that we might skillfully navigate our circumstances to bring about success, the preservation of life,
the fighting against sin and the joys that go beyond the treasures of this world. And Father, for those who do not even have the spirit of wisdom, we pray, Father, that they would look and see a coming king, receive him, and receive the spirit he offers by faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.